Welcome to Decades From Home, a podcast about the weird and wonderful side of living in Germany. And all without saying, alles hat ein Ende, nur die Wurst hat zwei. I'm Nick Houghton of 40percentgerman.com and I'm joined by my co-host Simon Maddox, who has been subjecting his wife to some traditional English cooking. So Simon, have you only been eating fried breakfasts? Oh, I wish. Uh, what a world that would be. Uh, I don't think my heart would take it. I, I think I'd, I'd balloon up and end up in hospital pretty quickly if it was a daily occurrence. Mm. We have had bacon sandwiches the last two days. Uh, Jealous. That's all the bacon gone now. And the other big thing I've gotten into is cottage pies. I don't think I'd had one for maybe 20 years. And then I saw a recipe for one. I was like, that's what I'm going to do. And since then, I've made eight, I think. Eight, eight cottage pies? <laughs> in total, yeah. yeah I'm making like mini ones or big ones? That's just... I, it, each one would be enough for three people, but it's, it's a, a hearty two-person division. What, so uh, explain to the audience what's a cottage pie. So yeah, I think a, a cottage pie is it's what I had more at school. So first you start with frying some onions, and then you add minced beef, hackfleisch, and some mushrooms. Brown that off, and then you can add in some carrots and some peas. Uh, and then once that's all cooked together for about 20 minutes, uh, that is your, your pie filling. Uh, the only other thing you need to add to that is some salt, some pepper, some herbs and spices and some Worcester sauce. Uh, I saw a recipe that had Worcester sauce and thought I need some of that in my life. And then you put that in a, in a pie dish or any sort of dish that could fit this. And then you top it all with uh, mashed potatoes. And then it goes in the oven uh, for about 25 minutes with some cheese on top. And once that's brown, uh, you are golden. And boom, you have a cottage pie. Uh, and then add some veggies and it's yeah quite a balanced meal uh, as far as english food goes it's got carrots peas onions um yeah that's quite a lot of gamuza for for us <laughs> it's about as it's about as healthy as you get now one of the things germans will always say or ask me about is baked beans mm. and i'm a fan of putting baked beans in my cottage pies so what's oh. what's your thoughts yeah I, i'm totally against that as a notion but i think this comes from uh, from being at boarding school um, because I would get baked beans served with every single meal. They would be there for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and I had that until I was 18. So I think since I left school, I've probably eaten baked beans 10 times. It's sort of a traumatic dish for me uh, as far as it goes. So yeah, I'm good on the baked beans. I think you have to revoke your British citizenship now if you're not eating baked beans <laughs> at least once a week. No, <laughs> at least once a week, you know. What I find, and I, I guess it's the same for you in this instance, is I'll wake up on a Monday and decide this week I'm going to make like mm. something really English or really British when it comes to dinner. Uh, and my go-tos are always... A proper mm. pie with like a pie crust, so like with a pastry crust, that's one of my favourites. Dumplings, mince and dumplings is another one. There's a few Scottish recipes in there, so Scottish listeners will know um, stovies, which is another mince dish, which is, it's very popular. It's essentially mm -hmm. just potatoes and mince, but it's it's epic. So that's another one that I enjoy making. Um, I'm not entirely sure how how much everyone else enjoys me making it, but I was about to say, like, what, what is what's your wife's position on English cuisine? I think having spent as much time as she has mm -hmm. in the UK and living with a British person, she'll ask occasionally, "Can you make this or will you make that?" Oh, wow! So, so cool. she's 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 into it, but I always find it tricky to get exactly right. I things like mince and dumplings is not the most difficult recipe to make the ingredients are pretty clear but there's certain things like suet getting suet yes 
Is it beef fat? Yeah, usually it's beef fat. But before Christmas, I was trying to make mince pies, and you need suet as part of it just mm. to get it right. You know, it's it's part of the consistency, and it's not. You don't taste it. What you taste is, I mean, a mince pie for German listeners, if you don't know, is a sweet uh, pastry case with it's like uh, raisins and, and and various different fruits that are. Uh, mixed together with a bit of alcohol of your choosing whether that's rum or whether that's brandy and you leave it to sit for a few days and it sort of congeals together into this like amazing sweet thing and then you stick it into a (laughs) pastry case and you cook it and you've got these amazing little things and i made it but i had to order mince in a jar from the uk so it was proper the only suet i could find here was for like pets Wow. <laughs> it's like eh, maybe maybe it's better i don't do this so there's just certain things yeah there's certain things you just don't get uh and you won't get and you just have to kind of accept that i think the attitude to to british food in germany is it's not very good that's a real trope like english food is terrible mm. but once people actually try it they realize oh it's not as bad it's not just mint sauce oh thank god you know it's something else <laughs> I mean, you can sort of, you can certainly sympathise with where this idea comes from. If you do, for example, like book a weekend in London with like an affordable airline, an affordable hotel, like if your breakfast is included, there's a really good chance you're not going to get a very high quality breakfast. And this is something that we sort of advertise proudly to others. Be like, oh yeah, the English breakfast is really good. But I think a lot of people, their first experience is quite poor. If you go to a chain restaurant, which is really hard not to do when you're a tourist in London, yeah, you, you don't really get to taste what, what is possible. Whereas if you find a really good pub or a nice or independent restaurant, right, there's a really good chance you're going to get high-quality local produce cooked very professionally. For a German tourist in London, for instance, it must be torture because everywhere is like, traditional, <laughs> traditional pub, <laughs> traditional. And you're like, you go in and it's and it's it's some microwaved meal from, from the kitchen. You rarely see a traditional restaurant in Germany advertised as a traditional restaurant. It'll be like a Wirtschaft or it'll have like a name, Stuber is a name that you might see, and you'll see these sorts of names, and you'll know just by the way it's advertised. If you've walked into a place that says traditional food and you've been given a microwaved lasagna, you're going to be a bit confused. So I totally understand where people are coming from. What you need if you're a German wondering about British food is find a British person, befriend them, and then get them to cook for you. So moving on to our first article, this week it's from theguardian.com and the title is Australian Scientist Gets a Baby Fish to Bust a Move to MC Hammer Classic. Now that's not a headline I was really expecting to read today, but there we go. Uh, You might be asking, of course, why we're talking about Australian scientists, but we'll get to the point as quickly as we can, I'm sure. The story involves uh, research into fish hearing. Yeah, again, you might be wondering why the hell is anyone researching fish hearing? But, you know, science is science. Uh, the, the, the article opens with a quite important question. What, what happens inside the brain of a baby zebrafish when you play MC Hammer's timeless 1990 hip-hop track, You Can't Touch This? So, uh, Simon, are you interested in the how fish hear? I mean, I didn't think I was. But then this headline it grabs me immediately, and this is so I rammed it into the, the notes for this article. Yeah, it's interesting. Like it sounds quite easy, this idea of just playing music to fish, but it transpires that these little zebrafish aren't actually in water. Uh, they have to set in a sort of viscous jelly where they can still breathe, but they can't move 
because their brains are being scanned by a laser that's really motion sensitive. So these zebrafish, they're being made to exist in a very, very different universe from what they are normally experiencing. So these fish are like almost living in some sort of purgatory. At the surface, it just looks like another one of those articles about a scientist doing something a little bit odd and with no clear end point or conclusion to it. But the scientist in charge of the research is, is a, a woman called Rebecca Paulson who's also a dj she's been she's yeah she's she's chosen you can't touch this i wonder why it was you can't touch this i mean it's a classic um so i mean it's got a pretty solid beat and apparently the results show that during the oh 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 moment the fish responded differently uh so they had a a, a different emotional reaction to to the chorus so yeah this song was simple enough for the fish to understand i guess but also has something that was yeah with the variation in beat and speed that allowed them to to clock these differences and and here's how we bring this home to decades from home <laughs> thank you listener for bearing with uh, with me on this um so i wanted to ask nick really how he felt about uh music and whether he could pick a german song to test the emotional reactions of these zebrafish so nick what german song would you pick if you were DJ Zebrafish. I'm glad that you've given me such a funky <laughs> DJ name. Well, I'll tell you now, I'm not going to choose just one song. I've got three songs. The, the songs I've chosen are songs that I heard either towards the end of my time living in the UK, moving to Germany, so they have a resonance and like a deep connection to how I feel about Germany. So the first song I've chosen is, is Sky and Sand by Paul Kalkbrenner. It, it's like really massive. It was a massive song at the time. It was a song that my German housemate played almost on repeat. So whether it's more Stockholm Syndrome or not, I don't know. But I loved, I loved this song. It's very minimalist. It's very euphoric. It's very optimistic as a song. And it's very repetitive, like most electro music. But it's it's really really lovely. I really love it. Yeah, it's it's. It, I think it was number one in Germany. It was just massive. And so when I whenever I think of that period where I was deciding to come to Germany and then eventually moved, I think of Sky and Sand. The second song I've chosen, Skandal im Sperrbezirk by Spider Murphy Gang, which is it's like a beer hall favorite. You know, it's a song that you hear mm-hmm. a lot at. at, at at um, Volksfest, Storfest, is a proper. Once it starts, everyone knows the words. And it was a song that I heard in the first months that I lived here, and realised, oh, I've got a lot to learn. There's just a mm-hmm. raft of music. They're not just singing the songs I know are German bands. It's not. They're not singing David Hasselhoff tunes or anything like that. There's <laughs> there's a whole culture, here and it was my, my a real insight into what what was in store for me and it's it's a funny little song it's got a social context behind it it was written in an era where uh, munich was changing essentially it's a song about a sex worker who works outside of the red light district in munich stealing clients from sex workers who work inside the red light district of munich and it's just really it's it's it was a massive song at the time weirdly it was i think it was banned in bavaria and the rest of germany were like yeah this is great we love this song even though it's about munich and honestly when when it comes on at a Volksfest, people are on the tables like after the first bar, they're like up like, and everyone's singing it, everyone knows the words mm-hmm. and it's been like my my aim to learn the words to the song and I still just can't, it's so rapid, it's very fast and so it's really hard <laughs> to learn and, and so when I'm able to sing it, you'll know I've become a true German. The final one I'm conflicted because there's actually it's one but two. So there's a band that I came across mm-hmm. maybe a few, few years after I moved uh, called Seed and they're a hip-hop group, hip-hop collective based in out of Berlin. 
and they're, they're massive you know they they everyone really enjoys their music and they've got some real like banging songs one of the most famous being a song called Dickersby which is about like life in Berlin one of the lead singers of the band's a guy called Peter Fox his debut album uh, which was Stadtaffer and uh, the, there's a couple of, of of massive tracks and, and I remember downloading it and, and listening to it almost daily Alice Noy is, is the first song oh, it's a, such a, it's a banging tune like it's really really good it's a great album it's a really really good album um, Schüttel dein Speck yeah love, um, is, love that it's got a very special place in my heart mm-hmm. my wife can rap the whole album as well it's, it's pretty dope that, again that's that's something I was like I really wish I could like because Alice Noy especially because it's it's got a, a very it's it's a very mm. pacey tune as well it's got this amazing uh, sample a, a violin sample in the background uh, the video's hilarious it's a really well made video and it's got a, a drum band like a marching mm-hmm. drum band it's uh, from America in the video and they're all wearing gorilla masks and it's just it's visually really intense go out and, and, and watch this video so there's that but there's also a song called House Am mm-hmm. Sea which is like it's just beautiful it's a beautiful song and so I'm sort of challenged by do I choose Seed or do, do I choose Peter Fox I might just choose both so they're my, they're my three slash four choices that yeah, i've nice. made how about well, you I'm, yeah I, first of all i, I, I approve sound cool yeah the, the peter fox album in particular like that's got a very special place in my in my heart for like german music and i think this is sort of one of the issues we face like growing up in the uk you don't really have much exposure no. to german music it really was nina and then rammstein and i can't really remember much in between Kraftwerk, obviously yeah yeah Kraftwerk, of, of course but i mean yeah for real sort of like on the nose german music mm-hmm. not meant not much of it made over like one of the first songs that i really fell in love with was the commissar by falco just mm-hmm. absolute classic like really cool disco beat funny rap as well like it's just falco's got style and yeah big fan uh, of that tune i think the fish would like it as well why do you think particularly the fish would like it is there an element is there a particularly fishy element to falco i just think the like the bass on boom 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 i think yeah i think that would work you could register emotion on those two sides um but funnily obviously falco is not german uh, i was going to get that out before people accuse me of not knowing he's of course austrian uh, and this means that he has quite a thick dialect as well so in the song commissar there is a line dignity um in Hochdeutsch it should be like don't turn around rum. and my wife who of course is a native german thought that he was actually saying da dum uh, so she couldn't even understand Falco's accent. It's terrifying when you realize sorry it's terrifying when you realize that other germans can't understand this is it. other like, germans yeah, the, and you're like yeah what do i do 500 <laughs> kilometers and like hey, i don't get what he's saying um so yeah. commissar would be up there and then i thought about schlager like i don't like schlager but it's as you said it's something where you realize that you don't have a very good grasp of this part of the culture and for me the the one schlager song that i do have a soft spot for is um i'm betting kornfeld by jürgen drews it's just a classic uh as far as schlager goes and it's not like techno like modern schlager it's a bit more old school so i quite like that i did also think about nina Luftballons, like, and i wondered would there be a difference between the german version and the english version so that's the next bit of research that i want to see uh can fish determine the difference and the final song i picked um i thought probably maybe the most successful german band out there maybe they sold more than rammstein i don't know scorpions yeah rock me like a hurricane like obviously it's not in German, so it doesn't strictly count. 
but if the little zebrafish brains don't light up when that song comes on then we know they have no souls <laughs> that's the gauge that's the gauge of, of fish souls is whether they enjoy the scorpions or yeah, not here i am <laughs> Listener, now you know, uh, if you don't like the song Rock Me Like a Hurricane by Scorpions, you have no soul. And that's what Simon <laughs> says, not me. Maybe we'll put a caveat. If you don't feel something when that, when that song plays, you might not have to like it. But if you don't, <laughs> don't react. Then you're a soulless husk of a person. <laughs> Lower than a zebrafish. <laughs> <laughs> The next article we're looking at is titled Emmanuel Kant, Ein Rassist. Uh, and this is a, uh, a pretty meaty article from Süddeutsche DE. And so before we go into the article itself, I kind of feel that um, I know that I'd certainly benefit from just explaining a little bit uh, about Emmanuel Kant before we start questioning uh, his moral compass as well. As so, Kant was born in 1724 in Königsberg, uh, which is now Kaliningrad in Russia. And Kant had a very strict education and was raised in a very traditional Protestant upbringing. Uh, At 16, he went to university to study philosophy. Uh, He then went on to work as a tutor and lecturer. And then in 1770, he was appointed professor of logic and metaphysics at the University of Königsberg. Uh, He never married and seems to have not actually left his hometown after 1754. Uh, so he ended up becoming a little bit of a sort of recluse in that respect. Didn't travel much. Um, but because of his position, and he was put in this position by the king, uh, he was a public intellectual and wrote on a really large range of topics. Now, I, I read philosophy at university, and Kant was a, a pretty key part of uh, the f- first year, really. And when I think of Kant, I think of two things primarily. The first thing is what we call a categorical imperative. And the categorical imperative, generally speaking, is the idea that we should only behave in a way where the choice we make should then become a universal law. So behave as all others should behave. So an example of that, let's use the Bible, is thou shalt not steal. That is a very categorical statement. Kant and his categorical imperative takes away this flexibility. It means that we have to focus on the long-term ramifications of the decisions we make. Everything we do needs to be good in the sense of being good enough for a universal law. These decisions have to be for the benefit of all as opposed to just the benefit of oneself. So commandments like thou shalt not steal set a framework that allow all to be judged in the same lines and Kant was trying to narrow down the flexibility of behavior what a lot of philosophy especially moral philosophy at this time did would say do not steal if you want to be popular and this is what we call a hypothetical imperative you could justify some questionable behavior with hypothetical imperatives Uh, I don't want to be popular so I can take this and I'm not breaking the same kind of moral code so that's the categorical imperative The other thing that I think of when I think of Kant, and it's far more romantic, is this idea that he called the sublime. This was mentioned in his book, uh, The Critique of Judgment, and Kant asked himself why people found like gardens and forests and pastoral settings beautiful. The feeling we get when we look up at the stars at night, that feeling he called the sublime. And this is something that I've always loved because we all feel this emotion. 
It can just be looking out your window on a beautiful day. I get it every time I walk into the city here and I see the architecture of Nuremberg. The sublime is everywhere. These two things, the categorical imperative and the sublime, are what I think of when I think of Kant. Obviously, as Simon said, he studied philosophy. And listen, if you're feeling like you're, you're paddling in the depths of philosophical thought, don't worry. I mean, it's kind of the... It was an archetype of Kant that he was very difficult to read. It's, it's difficult stuff, and it's an era where, where people are thinking deeply about the nature of political life, of the private life, of, of what are the, the things that the guy does and it's it's a deep thinking century the uh, the the 18th century and the reason i think that this is such an interesting article is if you read any level of german journalism you'll eventually come across a kant quote uh, it's very often that that journalists will will mm-hmm. just throw around these terms but even if you don't read any german newspapers and you just walk down a street you'll find yourself on streets that are named after philosophers that you possibly have never heard of and never came across in a way that you don't really you don't really get in Britain. And, and if you were to start quoting philosophers or philosophy in a conversation in Britain, I get a sense that people would like be incredibly intimidated and possibly it would alienate you quite quickly from a group of people. Like Whereas in, certainly in, in the gymnasium and in, in the higher levels of German school, a lot of kids are, learn about these things, learn about these ideas. So yeah, I was speaking to a teacher, a friend of mine, and, and she was telling me about a class she was doing and they were looking at the, the philosophical works of the 18th century. And it, and it kind of blew my mind that that's, that's a major part of the higher levels of education at school. Whereas for me at school, that wasn't really a big topic. I think the focus in, in English schools at least was is much more about like, especially Shakespeare like if that was sort of the, the end product to oh, show yeah, that you'd yeah. had a good education as if you could quote Shakespeare uh, Kant isn't very high up on my list I have to admit and I also nearly failed an exam because I mentioned him twice in two different answers uh, so me and Kant have got history uh, on this uh, so I mean this article let's let's get into what he's being accused of here which is yeah being a racist and the article opens um, the first sentence is about George Floyd and I just kind of found this a little bit curious because okay if you're going to talk about Kant being a racist I mean yeah of course it's perfectly sensible to mention a racist event but I kind of get the feeling that journalism in Germany is really being reliant on the George Floyd story and there are lots and lots and lots and lots of examples that would probably have a bit more impact. Well, certainly examples that come from Germany. I mean, not to, to mm. denigrate the memory of George Floyd. He's obviously... Not at all, no. in, in, in his death, something massive occurred, you know, and it created a big movement. But it always feels whenever a German journalist reaches for a, a story about racism, they'll reach for America before they'll ever think about what's happening on their own streets. And on the flip side of that, often if you do discuss the problems attached with racism you'll often get oh but that's in america like we don't have that same problem here mm-hmm. and yeah of course there is there's a spectrum there's a range that isn't necessarily identical but it, it feels like it's kind of putting it across the pond being like yeah look, don't forget what they're doing mm-hmm. uh, we're trying our best so yeah basically this was uh, a, a virtual a meeting held with the Berlin Brandenburg Academy in connection with the universities of Jena, Frankfurt am Main, Siegen and Luxembourg. So this was a nice academic forum to discuss this idea of if Kant is racist or not. People probably listening now going what the f- why the fuck are they talking about Kant? This is <laughs> this isn't the shit that I like signed up for, you know. I didn't come here to hear listen to these two assholes talk Bring about Bring back fucking- the dancing fish. Yeah, where's the dancing <laughs> fish? But it's it's actually something that I think's like really important is that you allow the complex ideas to 
to to be discussed and you investigate this stuff at the same time we don't just blanket say well what what i was taught at school was this and this is the truth it's like inquiring thought you know it's, it's having some skepticism it's having some some evidence you need to confront these ideas you know and i think it's important that we confront these documents we confront the the bad elements of our history because if you don't have those elements you've you've exposed to them and you've understood them and you think about it and you talk about it then these ideas sort of they just go underground and they the they can be manipulated by someone else like you put it out in the open and you argue it and you talk about it and you do it with respect and do it with with um, a common decency you can have these discussions but what they ended up doing was basically agreeing that as a man he was racist because he's a product of his time he of course was a white professor anointed by the king to be the head of metaphysics like this isn't an everyday guy uh, and he didn't travel much he didn't have the opportunity to and so he was reliant on on the word of others and i mean at this point in human history uh the travel uh journals that were coming back were not necessarily the, the kindest portrayals i mean there are some pretty unpleasant quotes so this is a direct quote from from Kant that really highlights the argument they say this is a direct quote and he said humanity in its greatest perfection is the race of whites the yellow indians have less talent the negroes are deeper and deepest are a section of the american peoples end quote so i mean yeah when you've got sentences like that in the text I, there is no discussion as to whether uh, or not that is racist uh, it is it's tainted and and sordid and all sorts of stereotypes and prejudgments and yeah very unpleasant language and if he was saying this stuff today, mm-hmm. he would be a racist, and we would say he was a racist. And and in his in the period in which he was talking, mm-hmm. we, but we got to remember this is eighteenth century thought. When you evaluate, say, someone like Rousseau, when you evaluate someone like Kant, when you evaluate all of these people who've sparked, certainly Rousseau, who sparked essentially the French Revolution, he's a massive part of the French Revolution and French revolutionary thought. A lot of their ideas and science that backed mm. their ideas was wrong. Like we know it was wrong because we know what we know now. And so I think it's really important, first and foremost, to place all this stuff in context. And as a historian, I've always advocated the idea that historians aren't just normal academics. Mm-hmm. They're like lawyers for the past. It's our, it's the job of a historian to collect the evidence and present it. I read something the other day that was interesting, which was, you mm-hmm. know that phrase, uh, history will judge them. That's what history does. Like it's, it, We look at the past and go, well, what did they actually do? And was it beneficial to society? And what did their thinking lead to? And yeah, I think that's part of, I think it's okay to reevaluate and discuss it. Well, I mean, you've highlighted one of the key people in this development that, that Kant goes through in his life, and that was, was Rousseau. So yeah, in 1762, uh, Kant read a couple of pieces by Rousseau, and it basically changed him. One of the key quotes there is, everything that comes out of the hands of the creator is good. Everything degenerates in the hands of man. And of course, man is born free, and everywhere he is in chains these rousseau notions of course played a huge mm-hmm. part in what nick said the french revolution yeah he changed kant's position and so kant wrote in german he said rousseau had me zurückgebracht ich lerne die menschen ehren to, to quote that into english rousseau got me right i am learning to honor people from there he went on towards what he called 
establishing the rights of mankind and this is really one of the other really key things that Kant did in in 1770 he wrote that he considered a person to be a, a creature who deserves respect and so, I mean, we're seeing this development and he directly uh, flagged the ideas of slavery as well. He even uh, referred to heavy iron, uh, so normal like manacles, like the way we imagine slaves in that time. But he also talked about gold-plated ones, pointing to the idea that we can be slaves in other ways. It isn't always necessarily the idea of forced labour you belong to me. We are slaves in different ways. And I think the other side of all of this is None of this shit happens in a vacuum, you know? That's one of the things that upset me the most about history is when it's missed, when it's abused. Like, so we, we before we said, like, oh, he's, he's a racist or if he, if his ideas were were, were, were put to, to people today, it would be seen as racist. And, and that's true. But at the fucking time, it was seen as racist. Like, so he's, to put it in a little bit of context, just quickly, like, he is writing this stuff at the same time as abolitionists are working against slavery in the UK and, and around the around the world. There was abolitionist movements in a lot of different places, and and and, and it was and it was something that that, that people were working against. Um, there's a really famous guy who um, I've, I've read a fantastic piece of history, and if you if you don't know it and you're interested, Black and British: uh, Forgotten History by David Olasoga. It's fantastic. It's one of the best books I've I've read in 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 the last year, and is the whole sections about about the abolitionist movement about about a guy called Granville Sharp and this guy's like trying to free slaves from slave ships he's like and him he's not alone there's there's a, a movement of not just british born white abolitionists there's 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 uh, foreign born black abolitionists british born black abolitionists working against this uh, against slavery and it's a much bigger story and when you understand that when you understand this is one side of a discussion that was happening that is still happening it gives you some insight into like we still these are problems that go like all the way back you know they go much further back than wherever we're even allowed to think about often when you see a debate on race certainly on german television it's quite shallow you see it a lot in britain you see it a lot in america they stick very much to what's happening right now but these are discussions that go so so much further back and i think we're actually it benefits us as, as as human beings to be able to like have these discussions and think about the things in a wider context than just like this is what happened this week or this is what happened. And I think that's what the media likes to do. And not to get all weird and conspiracy theory like it's not. It's just the nature of media now. It's immediate. It's five minute YouTube videos. It's two minute. It's TikTok. It's like it's just the nature of our society now. Is everything's very immediate and everything's very quick, and our news cycles spin like daily, hourly changes and i think that we're, we're there's a danger when you if you just slow down a bit and take time to have these discussions you can have like something that's really informative i don't know what you think about that whether you think that's a factor or not i mean uh, for me this also highlights the, the idea of experience because i mean these discussions that we see on, on german tv and in the press and stuff about race often the people that are speaking don't have a huge amount of experience either because of the color of their skin or because of the fact that they've grown up in a very very white environment and this is often critiqued that there needs to be a person who has experienced racism speaking about it as opposed to people saying it's not racist because i've not experienced it we need to accept the opinions of others who have experience when it comes to this and this is sort of i think the big struggle that germany has with race compared to 
other nations there is a defensiveness to this lack of experience and it will change germany is becoming more multicultural uh, we just have to look at the average kindergarten group and we know that in 20 years a lot of these old-fashioned notions about what is and isn't acceptable will change and will adapt and yeah i'm very optimistic about the future uh, of this discussion naturally i i think it's a shame that people like Cantor like hit tarred with this brush of racist um because yes it's not it's really unpleasant but it doesn't denigrate every single thing that he wrote and did and the experiences that he gathered in life changed him made him adapt his opinions i'm definitely going to protect his legacy as much as i can as well as damning all the racist stuff that he said uh, and that's the the difficult path we have to walk uh, when we like history when we like philosophy one of the things that's most uh, upsetting and alarming about the last five years last 10 years possibly the last 50 years of, is that we've slowly just been unable to accept complexity like we can't deal with complexity anymore like there is no this everything becomes a binary you know everything becomes simplified into its most basic part there has been i think an intention to remove history and change history and and change perspectives that is 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 actually affected us now it's not yes this stuff happened 200 300 years ago but it's become very relevant when you start thinking about what do we actually know about society and one of the things that's always impressed me about Germany is, and, and you're very noticeable when you come to Germany or you go to a museum about World War Two or about the Holocaust, that it's just fact. Like, is, there's no, there's no, like, very common in British museums is to go in and it tells it's tub thumping and it's very like what we did and, and how good it was and how mm. much we gave the world. The moment I went to the Dockwood Centrum in, in Nuremberg, for instance, the first time I went there, I was shocked by how just matter of fact it was there wasn't an argument to be had and i thought that's the way you do it that's the way you do it you present the stuff that happened and you allow the person in the museum to mm. make up their mind you don't just layer on upon layer upon layer of your own opinion and i think you present this stuff and say have the discussion and there's a lot of arguments about what is and what isn't and how we should remember these people and how we should venerate these people it's very hard to remove kant from our th way of thinking it, it's like taking away two steps from a staircase you know it's it's part of our progress of thought and i think that's that's one side that you have to understand you can't just delete them from uh, history and, and, and actually i don't think anyone's really arguing that you delete them from history it's about a reassessment i i know i, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for german philosophy and I say it was a really happy accident that I ended up studying it at all at university. And now two of my most prized possessions are old books uh, written by German philosophers, like early editions. Uh, and I've got a tattoo of one of these German philosophers on me. So, I mean, I'm in it, <laughs> that's for sure. Um, and yeah, the fact remains that even if you don't want to pick up the books, um, if you are trying to sort of learn and adapt to German culture one of the really good ways of doing that is just finding out a little bit about the history of, of these these people because they're so key they're so influential that they have shaped German life in many many ways uh, so yeah you don't have to read Goethe but reading about Goethe is a good way to understand German culture same with Nietzsche same with all these uh, boys Schiller Thomas Mann it doesn't have to be philosophy it can be anything but yeah, it's a really good way to, to learn more about your culture in the same way as listening to music, watching films. This is what culture is. My thought sort of is, I find philosophy really hard. 
I, I find it so hard and I hate stuff that I find hard. I, I like to think I'm a smart guy. I like to think I'm intelligent. Whether I am or not is kind of, it's not up to me to say really, it's up to everybody else. Um, it's not like people are running up to me in the street going, hey Nick, you're a smart fella. But like, I find it really difficult to tackle these the, the philosophical topics because it, it hurts my brain. And I think that's the thing is they seem intimidating these topics. I mean, I think even if people don't want to pick up like Nietzsche or Wittgenstein or something, uh, yeah, if, if I can totally sympathise with the lack of interest. However, I, I think just reading like a, a yeah. short biography of almost all of these like important German philosophers, just their life story introduces key elements of their philosophy. And you can see how each of these people had a, a really dramatic effect on the way that Germany yeah. and therefore Europe developed. Um we owe huge thanks to to the thoughts uh, and books created by these these people. I'll finish on this, and it's once you once you move to a country and you decide you're going to stay there, find out about this stuff because this is the culture you're living in. Like it's good, it's good that you know about your own culture from where you come from. It's also it's that exchange, man. That's that's why we're here. Like why why the fuck are we here if we're not to experience a completely different way of thinking or an attitude or a perspective so if you have if you're interested in the topic you definitely know where simon is i would be very enthusiastic if the audience if the listeners w- want to talk about this topic want to tweet us on this topic because it is it's it's a it's a f- for discussion and as i said last week like if we do it with respect and we do it we do it with kindness then you know like it's not a bad thing yeah, totally. I, I'd be really happy to engage with people on this. Hopefully this this, uh, this look into German philosophy and Kant hasn't been too taxing. Thanks for paying attention. <laughs> okay, moving on from the deep philosophical chat. This is a story from the ShropshireStar.com. Explosion heard for miles after Second World War bomb detonated in Exeter. And you might have seen this. It was a bit of a viral video. I saw it on Twitter earlier in the week. And it was essentially the discovery of a undetonated Second World War bomb. And it was a thousand kilograms. It's called a Herman bomb. This is something that Simon and I have a lot of experience with because Simon lives in Nuremberg and I used to live in Nuremberg. And Nuremberg was heavily bombed during the Second World War. And part of life is you'll try to go into a part of the city and you're not allowed it's cordoned off because they've discovered an unexploded bomb and they have to do a controlled explosion when i saw the video of from exeter i was like that's not a controlled explosion because actually i've never seen one of them exploded before you're not it's not something you get to see it's not like the police are going yeah sure come on <laughs> come on bring your phones have a look you know like take a look at this usually you can't get anywhere near a bomb when it's when it's being disarmed well that's it normally these bombs aren't exploded a controlled explosion is, is very very rare really and so what happened in Exeter was that uh, it ended up that the Royal Navy bomb disposal experts weren't able to defuse the bomb. And so then they switched over to the Royal Army's Royal Logistical Corps. And these guys came in and, um, and mm. blew it up. But I mean, yeah, it was a huge surprise, I think, to everyone living in the neighborhood. There was some luck because originally it was what, 100 meters around the bomb was cleared and evacuated. And then they extended to 400 meters. Uh, so they obviously knew that this was going to be a, a pretty substantial explosion. But yeah, it included 1,400 students who had to leave their 
their accommodation. Of course, right, yeah. So, I mean, if, you, if you're if you a local in Exeter, you've probably got family or friends you can stay with. But as a student, mm-hmm. it's problematic to have somewhere to crash, especially if you're one of 1,400 who need that. So and during I a pandemic Airbnb as well. did well. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's really not good. You'd be gutted, right? It's the pandemic. You're stuck in your house and you get a knock on the door and someone's like, oh, you have to, you have to go now because... Because we're going to blow up this bomb, and like, just like, obviously, in the the last segment, we were talking about how history's like now; it's happening now. This is a perfect example of what we're talking about. Like, this is a bomb that's been in the ground for what, like, seventy odd years, and now mm-hmm. you, people are having to leave their homes in order to get away from it. Have you had any experience with unexploded bombs in Nuremberg? Have you had any situations where you had to you had to leave your home? Or no, I've, I've been I've been very lucky. I haven't had to evacuate. I've seen areas being cordoned off. Uh, I've had to change trains a couple of times because of bombs. Um, but but generally speaking. I've not had to, to live in this in this perilous environment. Nuremberg, as Nick mentioned, was heavily, heavily bombed. I didn't really know a huge amount about the facts and figures, but on the 2nd of January in 1945, 521 British bombers dropped 6,000 bombs and 1 million incendiary devices on the city. Uh, this is not a, a huge city either, really. Half a million people. But yeah, this resulted in in yeah, nearly 2,000 deaths and 100,000 people losing their homes. I mean, there are maps available of Nuremberg where you can see how much was destroyed. And when you come here, tourists, or come here to live, like you wouldn't necessarily know because everything's being restored in a sort of very careful way. Um, but you basically only have one street where you can walk down it and really know how the city did look. Weissgerbergasse, which if mm-hmm. you... If you Google Nuremberg, that will probably be one of the first images. Uh, and it is incredibly beautiful. I think, generally speaking, in the UK, it's not as common. I don't recall that many stories of of uh, unexploded bombs being found and having to be dealt with. Uh, but this Exeter one, I think, demonstrated how, how inexperienced we are with this. Because I've not seen anything as, as dangerous as what happened uh, in Exeter happening in Germany. One of the strange advantages of finding unexploded World War II bombs is, this is a few years ago, I, I went into an office that I worked in, and I walked in at 8 o'clock, and it was dead quiet, and I was like, what's going on here? Like, why is it so quiet? And I got into the, like seven floors, usually it's buzz, buzzing, people going and getting coffee, and lots of people talking, and meetings happening and everything, and it was, it was almost silent. And I walked into the office that I work in usually, and it was like a skeleton crew, and I was like, where is everyone? And one of the guys who I do training with uh, turned around and went, oh, did you not hear this? The, the building site discovered a bomb. You have to leave at 12 o'clock. And I said, like, what? And it's like, work ends at 12. So you mean like I get a half day because someone someone had a World War Two bomb? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, yeah. And I was like, that's normal, right? And he's like, yeah, it's pretty normal. And it's just like, it's a really funny, weird experience where it's like, <laughs> What in what in what world do you finish? Like usually you finish work on a half day if it's like a special occasion. And this was just like now they're going to blow up the bomb. And I did ask. I said like, can we can we watch it? And they're like, no, no, you you got to leave. This there's, there's a yeah, there's a court. Like cause I was <laughs> I interested. I was like, there's a cordon around it, and 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 I'm glad they didn't after seeing the the what happened in Exeter. But yeah, it's very weird. Yeah. Anyone watching an Exeter lost their eyebrows by the looks of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there's people who were who were kilometres away. There was a, one of just someone who's walking down the street, and you heard like an explosion, and then the, the camera pans, and you see this cloud in the air. But yeah, pretty wild, pretty wild. Impressionable. <laughs> Jaden Sancho goes full Steve McLaren 
with funny German accent as Man United transfer target adds to stats and explains goal celebration. Uh, so this is an article from Talksport, who are not normally on our register of uh, news sources. I loved. I, I got to stop. Sorry, I got to stop. But that, I loved the way you read that. It was exactly the right tone of voice for that headline. It was. It's so. Oh, it's so over the top. Anyway, apologies. Yeah, I mean, who would critique this boy? Impressionable. <laughs> Fucking uh, hell. It's, it's a yeah. It's a bold move. So yeah, for the for the football fans out there, you'll know already. But for those who are not so in the know, Jaden Sancho is a, a young Englishman uh, from South London who has been setting the Bundesliga on fire for the last couple of seasons, playing extremely well in a very very competitive Dortmund team, uh, and has shown himself to be potentially a world class footballer. So us in England, we're very proud of our boy Jaden to to leave the UK and and come and live and work in Germany. Uh, it's not an option many young players take, but he has since been joined uh, by Jude Bellingham as well. Uh, so there is a little English contingent uh, of players over here. He was one of the first to sort of do it recently. I mean, you had like, like he was one of the first young players. He went from Man City to Borussia Dortmund. And I remember at the time, I remember at the time people were saying, like, why is he doing that? <laughs> and he's, he's really, he's really come on leaps and bounds playing in, in Germany, learning, learning his, his sort of craft in, in Germany. Uh, so the reason that, he's been deemed impressionable is that after the match against Schalke where Schalke unfortunately lost 4-0 Jaden uh, gave a pitch side interview and in this interview this boy from South London suddenly started talking with a German like twist on his accent and in the headline of the article he was called the full Steve McLaren and Steve McLaren for those of you who don't know was England manager and managed lots of clubs in the UK as well and after having a pretty disastrous time with the England team he, he left England altogether and became a manager in the Netherlands to get away uh, from the, the criticism at home and we all kind of forgot about Steve and then about six months later he gave an interview and Suddenly, he was talking with a Dutch accent. The most improbable Dutch accent you've ever heard. So he he became Steve McLaren (laughs) instead of Steve. And so, yeah, Jaden has also been accused by TalkSport of being impressionable (laughs) for adapting his accent. Uh, One other really good example is uh, everyone's favourite English hooligan, Joey Barton. Joey went to, to France... Yeah, no one saw that coming. And then six months later, he gave an interview where he was speaking with a French accent... Uh, so this is something that we do, and Jaden is is guilty of it as well, even though I wouldn't say guilt applies. So Jaden's yeah adapting his own English to sound more like the other guys he's working with, his teammates. That's what they speak like, and so he's adapting to match them. So I mean, Nick, obviously your accent is is is, is pretty. <laughs> I thought you were going to ask me if you adapted, and I was like, no. Clearly not. <laughs> I mean, Nick, your, your accent is a pretty pretty key identifier, and I've seen multiple times when we've met people together, mm-hmm. they are drawn to your accent in a way that I don't get that reaction at all. People are excited by your accent. Really? It's that something? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've never thought about that. Really, your people, really. the, the Geordies, are like world famous, uh, and... I think everyone in the UK likes Geordies. Not many people in the UK like my people. People from the South East are, <laughs> are generally speaking, not particularly welcome uh, in certain necks of the UK. You sound like the people who tax us. Exactly. This is the, this is the problem I deal with. I sound like I'm coming for your money. <laughs> <laughs> I know there was a study, this is an old study, but the Geordie accent is one of the most tr- trusted accents in the UK. And 
like if you if you want to sell something and get a Geordie, you know, often this, the Geordie accents used in well, this was a narration for for like Big Brother and things like that made it most famous. People like it. People like to hear it. It's got a certain lilt to it that people mm. appreciate. But I was thinking about Jaden Sancho, and I don't think it's that abnormal to spend a long time in a country and suddenly pick up either a change in your accent. Like, my accent is much softer now than it was, and I think I've talked in the past about what happens, but if I go back to the UK and come back here, my accent is much thicker and much tougher, and it takes a few days or maybe even a week to readjust mm-hmm. to to what I need to do because I won't enunciate things in the same way I won't pronounce things in mm. the same way and, I, th- and it, I throw in like slang a lot but it's quite normal that you'll do that and one of the things I've started doing and I notice it all the time is it's very common in, Ger- in when you speak German to use order like a question mm-hmm. at the end of a sentence almost like like in it in English in it or like, yeah. or it just isn't it you know and yeah. I've had a friend at university who that it was his like his slogan was isn't it Never, we'd never hear these question tags at the end of sentences in normal native English speech. But a lot of uh, non-native English speakers use it because it's taught as a as a structure, an important structure. And order is the same. So you'll even recognise people who who speak German, who are native English speakers. They'll talk to you and they'll say, "Is that right?" Or and they'll like add the mm. or they'll translate the order into or, which is what order means. And so that's quite normal. Like. Uh, and you must have things like that little, little, little like phrases that you'll pull out what i found that i do now is that my subconscious filler words have, have become german mm-hmm. so if for example i get surprising news now i don't go wow which i think was probably my default mm-hmm. when i was living in england now i go boar <laughs> like, that that yeah, is you do. my standard yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. um i i blame my wife for that like i've it's her pot affectations that I've picked up there. But yeah, I have to fight the instinct to use these sort of German filler words uh, or just German reaction words. Like, I think guile, I, I have an instinct to use the word guile now more than like, oh, cool. Mm. So yeah, I think this is really my problem. Every now and again, I've, I found myself speaking to someone back home and then I'm just like, oh, I nearly said a German word then. Um, so that's quite hard to stop. Uh, well, I know I can always tell how much German you've spoken in a day when I come and see you or when I speak to you because <laughs> because you will you, you, the initial first few minutes of a conversation will be it won't be like structured like a German sentence. You don't sound like you're German, but the certain infle- like inflection points or certain like phrases that you'll use, and by the end of like an evening of us playing like FIFA or something or talking or whatever, you will you'll have pulled out a load of english like slang or something like that that you will and and i think it changes and fluctuates depending on how much german you're speaking in on any given day or how much german you're listening to or how much german tv Mm. you're watching i think that's quite normal and you speak a lot more german at home than i do so I, i think it's it's that's 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 part of it I think it's like it's nice it's like it's like a nice thing isn't it I don't think you should mm-hmm. I think it's it's quite a bullshit article it's quite a bullshit title it's like you said impressionable is quite a like powerful word to start your headline with it just sounds like it comes from a place of intimidation native english speakers from britain mm-hmm. are intimidated by those who speak other languages 
And one of the first questions I always get is, do you speak German? How mm-hmm. do you prove yeah, yeah, that? Really... And I say, well, I can fucking say anything at this point. I could say any- one of my favourite phrases is to, is to like call them an idiot. And it's a bit like mean, but like it's like, uh, <laughs> like why not? I'm obviously not idiot. I would be like, du bist ein Depp or a, like something like that. And and they're like, oh, wow, you do speak German. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I do. <laughs> I think there is fear like that this person's somehow pretending to be something he's not or they're doing something that makes them out to be insincere. I think that's probably where that comes from. Do you, do you think like it's it's more? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think we're always trying to camouflage ourselves based on who we're talking to. I mean, I know I'm supremely guilty of this because the voice I'm using now, I'm trying mm-hmm. my best to, to sort of speak in a clear way. When I'm speaking with my boys back home, my T's and my H's disappear and I become a bit more London sounding. When I talk to my mum, I sound like I'm very, very well educated. I really make sure I say every word correctly. And when I'm talking to others, I will mm-hmm. I will start using terms that they use. So if I'm speaking to my Scottish friends, it's only a matter of time before I say I instead of saying yes. I'm, I'm just going to do that because I'm trying, we're just trying mm-hmm. our best to join this level. And I think especially in England, the sort of the key example we have with this is the word mate because it is the word we use to to greet someone who we want to be on their level or bring our level down as we perceive it so if if i have a hand worker if i've got someone coming to my house Mm -hmm. to fix something that's broken there's no way i'm going to say hi sir come in or hello mister even if i know his name Mm -hmm. i'll be you're right mate and that shows him that i'm cool that i'm not judging him i'm not i'm not looking down on him and i think english people are really guilty of doing this regularly so we adjust based on who mm-hmm. we're talking to 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 fit in as best as possible yeah yeah whereas yeah. i in my experience anyway germans are sort of just proud of who they are uh, so my, my my frankish friends they love speaking frankish mm-hmm. in a thick dialect to like blow the minds of other germans um my wife who's someone from northern westfalen speaks like pot she loves using that with people to identify this is where i'm from originally um and i think we're a bit more i know certainly i am a little bit more ashamed of how i sound because i don't that stuff i no i I, there was one time i recall i i can't remember the exact quote but you said to me there are times this is when we were drinking there are times when we're talking where you sound like really street and really cool and other times where you sound like the ultimate private schoolboy, and that's my that's like the hidden me oh i'm sorry (laughs) i'm sorry if i've made like i would hate to think who i am no it's i am i went to a boarding school my parents were upper middle class i have to accept that's who i am Uh, and that's okay but the way that i project not being a rich kid or at least from like a, a, a privileged background is by speaking the way that i do the way that I do, in it, in it. But I would feel like I feel like you're more street than I am, you know. Like I always see, I've just done it there. Uh, you know, like I was thinking when you were saying how you would adjust your accent to fit the workman coming over. Like right now, I've got the Geordie lilt, but say I had a workman come over and they were like, um, "I'll read, mate. I'm here. To, uh, I'm here to fix your boiler." And I would like straight away be like, yeah, you know, I know what you mean. Like, ah, it's uh, it's just how we're here, you know. It's uh, it's canny this boiler, but you know, sometimes it's uh, it's it's got it's got some uh, some problems, you know. And like, you would just, I would like, God, like, I I want to be as Geordie as that guy. And it's a big thing for for like an identity in Newcastle is like, are you a real Geordie? Like, people will ask you like. 
they'll ask me and certainly ask me a lot they would say like the like i'll go back and i'll be talking like this and they'll they'll recognize my voice but the the or the accent but they don't quite they can't quite place it because it's got because i'm enunciating i'm saying t's i'm doing stuff that doesn't mm. makes me sound like posh and inverted commas an honest question i'll be like oh where are you from oh, i'm from newcastle where were you born like <laughs> in newcastle and like yeah which hospital that's what it comes down to, and I'm like, and I'll turn them and I'm like, there's only there was only one maternity ward, and it was in Jasmine. Ah, oh, well, you're posh then, aren't you? And I'm like, all the people who were born in the year 1983 in Newcastle were born in this hospital. If they were in the city limits of Newcastle, it's the only place where there was a maternity ward. But that's that's the category, and that's what you're kind of dealing with. Is it's the how Cockney are you? How Geordie are you? How Glaswegian are you? You know? And there's a lot of pride, Definitely, as you say, yeah. attached to being what would from the outside be considered maybe the worst like being the Geordie that never left Newcastle mm-hmm. having the thickest accent that's hardest to understand is the best mm-hmm. case scenario being a cockney born in the bells mm-hmm. of bow and like not having left like that's a, a badge of honour that makes you pure mm-hmm. and this idea that you're posh and that's a, a sort of a negative aspect Massively. no one's denying your Geordiness mm-hmm. but they are tainting it by saying you're not as working class as the next Geordie and yeah well that's it isn't it it's yeah. essentially what they're saying is you're not you, your your family didn't work in the shipyards and your mm. family didn't work in the mines and I'm like ah oh, no they didn't they didn't they didn't work in the, yeah. those locations at all and and obviously class is, is a big part of that but but what I always find interesting is the fact that like so if there's me and there's a guy from a place called Wall's End it's where Hadrian's Wall the Roman Wall uh, near the border of between England and Scotland people who come from Wall's End Wall's End end of the wall right is they're the most geordie they're seen as the proper geordies right so say there's me and a guy from wall's end he might say to me i'm a posh geordie but then if you rock up i'm a, i'm geordie i'm on his side like like instantly i've become like oh wait we're we're together and you'll see it you'll see it when we've we've had it before when we've been in the pub and there's been someone from sunderland now newcastle and sunderland are usually like arrival cities as soon as someone finds out i'm from newcastle or i find out they're from sunderland we'll start talking and we're like, oh, we'll make jokes about each other. And it's usually really good natured and really nice. But then someone will say, oh, they'll say something about Sunderland and like to try and sort of antagonize one of us or they'll say something about Newcastle. And almost instantaneously, that person doesn't matter. I've only met them two minutes ago or I've like whatever. I'll either say, or that person will probably say, like, where you're from the South. And like already we're like bonded, but we're the only Northerners mm. in the room. So like, fuck off, basically. <laughs> Like, the identity's strong, you know? It's a really challenging thing. Obviously, the way I sound, very, very Southern, and I was raised in the Southeast, but mm-hmm. like my family is, is West Midlands and, and Yorkshire, and I'm immensely proud of that and wish that I had a Yorkshire accent. I'd, I'd love to sound that, that way, but I, I can't fight who I am. But I've always sort of... I've, I've never enjoyed that sort of, oh, you're a Southerner, because mm-hmm. I sound like one, I am like one, but the blood in my veins is northern and there is a sort of a pride mm-hmm. in that that I, I'm, I'm very jealous of um yeah regional identity man yeah yeah i mean i, I think my accent's probably more marketable uh, as far as like teaching goes and things oh, like yeah, that definitely but that's that's about the only upside and all the all the other lads from the from the uk are always going to prefer <laughs> you guys like our, our scottish uh, Northern Irish uh, friends, they're, they're always more drawn to you. Uh, I said, my accent is uh, is the sound of an imperialist. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here to colonise. Uh, I think <laughs> when I think about Jaden Sancho, I'm just like, oh, well, 
you know? He's just trying to communicate. And he's probably tried to clear up his accent in the same way I have, to be better understood by his teammates. And m- more power yeah, to him. This is definitely it. Like, as a kid from South London, like he's grown up in a very sort of metropolitan place with accents and dialects from all over the world. But it's taken this move internationally for him to realise, if I talk the way I talk at home, these these German guys, these guys from other parts of the world, aren't necessarily going to get me. One last thought on this. Perhaps, he, perhaps he's going to be looking for an English teacher. Perhaps there's a chance here for us to, to teach Jaden Sancho how to speak English again. <laughs> I, I, I think that is my dream job, becoming like the in-house trainer for like a football yeah, club. Yeah, any football and club. And try to teach them all these idioms, be like, yeah, I, I've naturally I'm thrilled for my goal, but it's all about the team. Uh, like These kinds of set phrases. Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd be all over that. Yeah, so any football teams out there, you know where we are. Sehr geehrte Damen und Herren, vielen Dank, dass Sie den Podcast angehört haben. This week I want to thank a couple of people. Firstly, Steve, thanks again for the email. Always appreciated. Thanks to Jonathan for the regular support. I'm a big fan of your YouTube channel and uh, I think Simon is as well. Top stuff. Thank you to Nick once again. Excellent name for your nice tweet the other day. And finally to Lars. We may disagree on birthday superstitions, but let's not dwell on that too much. I'd also like to thank all of you who have been retweeting the podcast or or sharing links. It's appreciated and it's really helping us spread the word on the podcast and bring in new listeners all the time. Our audience as well, I'm sure Simon would say guile, but I'm constantly freaked out by that word, so I'll just say you're all fantastic and loiter. As ever, if you have any questions, feedback, or maybe an article or topic you'd like this to cover, you can tweet Simon on at Decades From Home. You can tweet me at 40% German. You can also get us on 40%german at gmail.com. If you have time, take a look at 40%german.com. Weekly articles are up every Saturday. All that's left to say is thanks and uh, bis zum nächsten Mal. Tschüss! Hey, alles glänzt, so schön neu. Hey, wenn's dir nicht gefällt, mag neu. Die Welt mit Staub bedeckt, doch ich will sehen, wo's hingeht. Steig auf den Berg aus Dreck, weil oben frischer Wind weht. Hey, alles glänzt, so schön neu, yeah, yeah, yeah. How's that for a bonus track?